0: You're listening to an ACCA podcast.
1: It's a great pleasure to welcome you this afternoon to um, this evening's panel on Truth and Trust, in association with our current exhibition, uh, The Theatre is Lying. The Theatre is Lying is the inaugural edition of the Macfarlane Commissions, which is a new multi-year partnership um, designed to support the production and presentation of ambitious new projects by contemporary artists. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Bun as traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to their ancestors and elders, past, present, and emerging, and to all First Nations people who might join us this evening. This evening's panel is set against the backdrop of our current show, as i said, and it explores ideas and perceptions related to truth, trust, and reality, asking the question, what is so intimidating about reality in a post-truth world? Um, the panel has been convened by Annabelle Lacroix, AKA's curator of public programs, who formally concluded her role last week, actually, um, and is soon to return to France. So we really are delighted to welcome her back today as a special guest, um, but also um, to say um, thank you for her wonderful contributions and to wish her all the best with her um, new adventures back in France, so um, thank, thank you, you Annabelle. Um, and it's also, of course, a great pleasure, um, and we're really delighted that um, both Justin Clements, Madison Connelton, and Andre Dow are able to join us this evening to consider these questions of trust, truth, fiction and reality, how they might have changed in the age of fake news, Trumpisms and social media, um, and to reflect on these questions from their positions as... Um, Yeah, thinkers, writers, storytellers, editors and journalists. Um, I'd like to make a special uh, welcome and acknowledgement this evening of our lead media partner for The Theatre is Lying, the Saturday paper, which celebrated its fifth birthday over the weekend. Um, And just to note that I think we're all the better and our public discourse and debate is all the better for those five years, so thank you. Um, And in addition to the forum today, The Saturday paper are also uh, supporting two further um, artist talks, um, or series of artist talks. um, The first with Matthew Griffin, Daniel Janach, and Consuelo Cavaniglia on Saturday afternoon, 16th of March at 3 p.m. And the second is a keynote lecture by the collaborative um, artists Anna Brecon and Nat Randall on Saturday, 23rd of March in the final weekend at 5 p.m. So I encourage you to join us for those events. Uh, and now, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to hand over to Annabelle to welcome and introduce our guest speakers.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Max. Um, and welcome, everyone. And I'd uh, like to welcome our panellists especially, and I'll just start by um, doing a little bit of a formal introduction to everyone here. So next to me, we have Justin Clements, who is an academic and published poet who is known for his works on Alain Badiou and psychoanalysis, European philosophy, and contemporary Australian art and literature. Uh, his recent books include Lacan, Deleuze, and Badiou, um, that was published in 2014. Um, and uh, Justin is currently a senior lecturer in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. Um, Madison Kunaten is the editor of the Saturday paper, and her reporting on the Syrian border saw her become the finalist of the 2018 Walkley Award for Young Australian Journalist of the Year, um, and has also uh, been published widely, um, and has been a, a correspondent for Vast News previously. And Andre Doe here um, is the deputy editor of The New Philosopher, also a uh, widely published writer of fiction and non-fiction and a PhD candidate um, at Melbourne University. He's a co-founder of Behind the Wire, an all-history project documenting people's experience on immigration detention um, centres. And he's uh, producing the uh, Messenger, the podcast, which is uh, starting again and available uh, through the Willow Centre, um, which chronicles the life uh, on people on Manus Island. Um, So, without further ado, I'll just um, do a a sort of little introduction of tonight's topic uh, on truth and trust. Um, And I've asked each of our speakers to um, provide a a response um, from their perspective. So we'll go into um, a bit uh, of presentation from each of them before we go into discussion. So I've asked um, our panelists to respond to two key um, ideas, uh, one of uh, which uh, Max mentioned, which is around the idea that reality is a a word that is um, used to intimidate. um, And that's something that uh, philosopher Alain Badiou has um, discussed in his book In Search uh, of the Lost Real. And he explains how, for him, the 20th century is really the century of the passion for the real. And that's really quite fascinating to see how artists in many ways are engaging with that. Um, and we can see that in the exhibition. So he says that there is a dominant opinion that realities are constraining um, and that we only have to accept it. And he asks if reality should be considered as something that is imposed upon us um, as opposed to the common view of something that is um, discovered or narrated or um, even invented? So it's one of those questions um, that we can uh, think about today. Um, and so in relation to also some of the artworks in the exhibition, which we might discuss a little bit, um, that talk, that uh, bring up my concerns around journalism and politics also, um, and in the sort of uh, debate of post-throughs and, um, and fake news, what is so intimidating, um, and if those this kind of discomfort comes from the fact that truth comes with alternatives um, and is that something that in a way creates too much world for us to engage with. Um, And the second part of my provocation was around um, the relationship to truth and trust in art um, and thinking about our relationship to art and also how it's um, made. So Adrian Martin talks about how that happen, happens twice that truth is essential to the work of art, one to be created, and second to be consumed, um, and that we accept artistic truth um, because we have faith in it. Um, so, in, within the backdrop of this um, exhibition, that sets up a little bit of a framework, um, and I'll now uh, hand over to you, Justin, um, for your response.
3: Um, uh, thank you, Annabella. I, I presume we're just going down the line this way. Is that, that yeah, the way it's going special. to go? OK, fantastic. Will you excuse me? I'm, I'm going to actually read off my mobile phone. I'm going to start reading, and then I'll just keep going until, until I'm told to stop, uh, essentially. And I, but I did want to begin. I, I don't know if anyone... I was quite shocked by this, but have you taken the Momo Challenge yet? And why not? Why haven't you taken the Momo Challenge? How far behind are you? I don't mean the Asian dumpling or one of the many eating establishments with that name, including in Melbourne. After all, this phenomenon has been going on for at least a year. It was first reported in July 2018 or thereabouts, but the effects are truly global. It even has a wiki page, the Momo Challenge. Has anyone seen the wiki page, uh, the Wikipedia page for the Momo Challenge? And, and do you know what the MOBO, Momo Challenge is? I'm, I'm still shocked. I didn't know about it. But it's a terrifying hoax where children get random messages on WhatsApp from a grotesque creature suggesting that they harm themselves. And if they don't harm themselves, the message becomes, uh, 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 allegedly at least, the algorithm starts sending more and more ex- uh, uh, uh Uh, vicious violence and and repulsive uh, uh, messages with with graphic images of violence and suggesting that they should self-harm and so on and so on. Now, uh, apparently, this was a hoax. This never actually happened, apart from the fact it was reported as if it were a hoax. And when it was reported as if it were a hoax, uh, 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 last month in Northern Ireland, in fact, and because it was reported online, then everyone started spreading virally the fact that this hoax was, in fact, a hoax, but a hoax that no one had heard of, until it was being spread as a hoax. But as soon as it was being spread as a hoax, then in fact people started producing Momo videos. And it in fact went viral such that now, because of the harm that people were expecting to happen if they didn't shut down something that they knew to be a hoax, but in the very act of attempting it to shut down, made it a viral phenomenon such that now, if you Google anything about Momo, you will immediately get a whole series, and immediately on the front page, no matter who you are, despite filter bubbles and so on, you'll get a whole series of uh, information about this hoax, including real hoax, real or hoax, but real videos with Momo encouraging you to self-harm, right. and of course, once this has started to happen, then the then the the virality of it spreads, and it started to affect even the. Peppa Pig videos, which, as we know, due to like automated algorithms over the last few years, uh, which have been uploaded automatically on YouTube in such vast numbers, that are not actually Peppa Pig, but versions of Peppa Pig created algorithmically, such that Peppa looks a bit like Peppa. I don't know what the. Does anyone know anything about Peppa Pig? I don't actually know anything about Peppa Pig. Nonetheless, halfway through, or at some point through these videos, as you start to watch these videos, and mainly you don't watch these videos because you let your kids watch these videos on their own, uh, something's quite. Strange starts to happen, like uh, Peppa Pig goes to the dentist and she has her whole face removed in a in a in a gruesome sort of uh, 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 like not very ethical surgical procedure by the algorithmically generated Peppa Pig. De- uh, and so on. And since uh, since I've been talking about Momo, it turns out that now these algorithmic Peppa Pig videos, which are already kind of slightly violent and disturbing, have now also been infiltrated by people creating Momo. So you can be watching a Peppa Pig video, which is not a Peppa Pig video, which at some point has Peppa. A pig's head being ripped off by a crazy pig, sir, pig, pig dentist, and then Momo comes in encouraging you to self harm. But then, of course, you shouldn't worry about this because when you, up, when, when you get online, there'll be a whole lot of information telling you you shouldn't worry about this because this is a hoax and actually no one's been harmed. But as everyone's being told, uh, don't worry about it. Then, a whole lot of reports have been coming in all over the world from Brazil, Mexico, uh, Japan, and so forth that children have actually been self-harming, and some of them even committing suicide as a result of seeing the MoMo videos. Now, given that this is the case, I'm not quite sure where reality is. In the very attempt to, to declare that something is a hoax, which everyone knows very well to be a hoax, you actually uh, performatively create the very opposite of the thing that you purport to be doing. And part of the problem with this is if you don't warn people about the hoax, they might actually be suckered in by the hoax, in which case it would be a disaster, and you would have uh, given a, 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 your, given up your duty of care, or not fulfilled your duty of care. But in fulfilling your duty of care, you're actually disseminating a message and thereby can, uh, uh, are causing more harm. And this this is uh, probably the situation that I would like to describe for you in the... In the uh, uh, and that's the simplest and most searing possible way that I can describe the deadlock of the presence in a, in a fully globalised internet world, is if you do not report this, you are failing your duty of care. But if you report it, you will cause more harm than if you fail to report it. So it's a kind of new contemporary, I guess a digital version of damned if you do, damned if you don't. But the consequences now are at once so uh, kind of, it's so easy to do but the consequences are so uh, uh, massively in excess of the very act that enables these things to, to, to go online in the first place. So does, I hope I hope that makes sense. A new kind of digi- digital uh, digi- digital deadlock. <laughs> Where one receives messages from a grotesque creature which are both real and fake and which Disseminate randomly and massively, and in a in a very very uncontrollable fashion, and which makes sure that every time you look at something, you yourself have become complicit simply by looking at something and looking at something which you didn't even want to look at, which actually sort you out through an algo algorithmic procedure. So you don't even have to do anything to become a killer these days. You merely have to own a mobile phone with a connection to the internet, and you are directly and immediately implicated in the possibility that you will be getting a message from someone you don't know, who probably isn't even a person, if you if you look at the Russian bot farms or the uh, Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese gaming farming or indeed uh, Israeli psyops companies, like you don't even need to, you don't even need to be, to be part of it, to get a message which is going to, force you into an ethical dilemma which you cannot unsee, and whether you act on it and whether you don't act on it, you actually have, have you're actually actively compromised by being entirely passive. So that's a, a, another of the paradoxes I'd like to underline mm. about the, the, the world we're in. Absolutely passive and yet you're being active in your absolute in, 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 in your absolute uh, uh, passivity.
2: And algorithms are um, not anonymous though, it's you talk about it as if it was this sort of like othering of the machine. Um...
3: Um, I, I would like to say not only are uh, algorithms uh, anonymous, but uh, 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 human beings are more anonymous than algorithms in a, in a very weird sense today. Uh, a guy called Max Reed, I'm not sure that it's his real name, because whenever you read anything on the internet, is a, is a long article by a guy called Max Reed that believable? Maybe Max Reed really is his name, I'm not sure. It was uh, from a, a New York blog post, and it pointed out that since most of the algorithms that are, that are written by teams, Teams of uh, teams of uh, uh, well, Israeli psyops, come uh, uh, secret psyops companies, uh, uh, or the Russian troll farms, and so on. Well, they are kind of anonymous, and they're deliberately anonymous. And not only are they deliberately anonymous, but precisely because the algorithms that are being written by YouTube and so forth Facebook to try and respond to the algorithms that are being resp- uh, that they're responded to is that you're actually in a state of, uh, of what 's basically cognitive warfare and so cognitive warfare in which uh, a confusion spreads actually anonymity is the is the very problem there is no identification of uh, on, on that side it's not really the machine but humans themselves have become kind of uh, a buggered algorithms under the conditions of the, of the new world. You're, all of us are much less good than algorithms. We sleep, some of us, uh, apart from the Saturday paper, which obviously no one sleeps the Saturday paper, because of the, um, you've got to get the news, right? Like, it's too much, so much, so much going on. So part of the problem with being a human is that the algorithm, like a, a blind driver, it, off it goes. And then other algorithms contribute to it. They're written. They're written against it or for us, or as uh, as as people say. Although I, I can't I, I can't verify this, and this is part of the problem. For example, uh, uh, Putin in the Ukraine, creating, uh, funding deliberately ultra left groups, funding ultra right groups funding some totally crazy, mad people who believe in, in lizard folk, and then putting them all into into connection with each other. Why? Because the point is not to actually win or lose, or to have a clear winner or a clear loser, but to create so much confusion and despair, in fact, a way that there's no way out of it, no matter what what you do, that, that in fact, that's the situation which is ripe for exploitation. So this is another paradox I would want to say, not the clarity of the internet, but actually the, the motivated, creation of the of the the most uh, uh, crazy infogut info conf- uh, infoglut, infoglut. Infoglut info glut confusion has
2: Yeah, I guess it's the power of what you were saying before about Momo It's the ambiguity whether it is real or not. Well and, in... and the ambiguity of it's is it re-
3: if it's real or not, it doesn't matter. As soon as you name it, uh, 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 it's become real. Uh, I, it reminded me of a very strange thing that used to, uh, used to happen in uh, 16th century England uh, where, where the law regarding treason is such that if you hear someone saying something that's possibly treacherous, you must immediately report it to an authority or you yourself are guilty of complicity in not not letting the authorities know. The problem is, if you tell an authority what you've witnessed, that's tantamount to the transmission of the treachery, and therefore you are also guilty. So I would like to say that the internet has managed to revivify the most anti-democratic, tyrannical, and uh, can we say late uh, late medieval laws of you are absolutely guilty for simply opening it and there is no way you're going to discharge your guilt because every moment that you try and respond, it's always already uh, part of the system. Now your guilt, and I would say, uh, I would say this about several. Uh, Aphex, uh, shame, guilt, rage—very, very primal. Aphex, like disseminate a part of the dissemination of the of the of of this uh, this internet confusion. And I would like to say also, and I, I should finish on this, is that there is uh, my my position is that under these conditions, uh, truth and falsity become very. Uh, small terms in, in, uh, compared to what's actually going on and actually will blind us to what's going on if we, if we take them in their, their traditional signification. But also that uh, there is no way not to be confused about this situation, and anyone, including myself, who might seem to be saying there's a way not to be confused is either actively lying to you or a, or a fool. And so they're your options. Uh, believe me, in which case you're fools, or doubt me, in which case you're probably right to do so but you know you tell me something about the internet that um yeah that's nice (laughs) true good all right thank you
2: thanks um andre
4: um i think the answer to your deadlock is actually quite simple it's um, just more machine learning algorithms you just create a program that reads your emails for you or looks at videos for you and it reports it to the authorities if it detects yeah. the violence, and if it doesn't, um, then it allows you to watch it, um, and then you know you, you don't have this uh, problem of uh, transmitting. Um...
3: Oh, 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 but you, you do because you are that algorithm, like you are just a kind of now uh, in your outsourcing and linking to that algorithm doesn't separate you from it. It says, we know Andre that you set up that algorithm. Why did you set out that? Because I, you that knew, I, knew, I knew that you knew what you were guilty. And we can see you were guilty because you were anticipating your own guilt and that we would be looking at whether you were guilty. And here you are setting up in advance. You were guilty as hell. So all I'm saying, Andre, is that, well, that's not a bad idea. And I, uh, you suggested to me before that that could be monetized. And I totally agree with you. And I think it should be sold. But I'm not sure it's a full solution to the, to the, to the problems that we're, we're laboring under.
4: I think the law of um, corporations would be helpful here because you'd set up, you'd obviously set up the algorithm uh, as a company which has its own rights and responsibilities and you as a director can't be held accountable for what it does. So I think that's um, uh, very simple. The legal world is way ahead of you, Justin. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, well, I'd like to say that I would like to say that's true, apart from Putin, Chinese farms, and uh, uh, even calling them farms, I find hideous. Where, where you know, where you get the where you trick those algorithms precisely by having ten thousand, a bank of ten thousand mobile phones, and the the workers at these these farms literally just watch the same, get the phones to watch the same video thousands and thousands of times on thousands and thousands of screens. So the idea that more of the thing. That's the problem is going to be the solution uh, seems to be uh, eminently gameable. And in fact, it's already been gamed by, say, these, these sorts of firms by the Russians and indeed the Israeli psyops companies who, as I understand, are, are expert at making sure that no possible solidarity will ever be, uh, ever be able to be actualized again. And in fact, through, through splitting confusion, uh and, uh and 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 indeed uh, uh targeting of um of, of legal uh, game gaming the legal niceties um
4: well I, all sort of tongue-in-cheek comments aside i think it, all, oh, this uh, is
3: all true none of us are yeah we're all serious Andre.
4: Yeah. um i my um sort of uh response to the provocation also starts at a screen um i'm gonna tell three little stories, little vignettes, um, about truth and trust and technology. Um, And the first one, as I said, starts at a screen as well. So today at my desk, um, I went to a website called thispersondoesnotexist.com. And there on my computer screen um, appeared a completely lifelike photo of a person who has been wholly generated by an algorithm. Um, This person was a serious-looking middle-aged woman wearing squarish glasses. Uh, She had shortly cropped hair and she looked like someone I might run into in the corridors of the university where I work. When I refreshed the page, another person, also non-existent, appeared. Uh, This time the person was a young woman, apparently about to speak or sing into a microphone in front of her face. But this time there was a glitch in the algorithm. The woman's left eye was wrong. Um, She had no iris in that left eye. It was just a dark blur, um, as if her pupil um, had not only dilated, but started to blur into um, her eyebrows. I refreshed the page again, and now there's again another face looking out of my screen, this time a Hispanic man with acne scars and salt and pepper hair, Um, and so it could go on if I had the patience and the time to keep refreshing the page. An endless parade of unreal, real-looking faces. Those faces are generated by machine learning algorithms called neural networks that are trained on images of real people to capture and reproduce the properties of a data set, in this case, um, human faces. Um, And they were were generated using a very specific type of machine learning called generative adversarial networks, um, where two neural networks um, are used, one trained to spot fakes and the other um, network uh, using... The training of the other ne- network um, to produce ever better, uh, more convincing fakes. This same technique has been used to generate so called voice skins, allowing a user to speak in other people's voices. Um, on one site um, that I looked at today called modulate.ai, the example um, is uh, a voice skin for Barack Obama's voice, um, allowing you to, to speak um, and, and say any words you want um, in a Relatively not entirely convincing um, uh, simulacra of Obama's voice. Um, the same technology is used to create so called deep fake videos, where a deep neural network encodes a face, um, creating a representation that can be decoded to reconstruct the face in another context, um, allowing for face swapping videos. Uh, There's a text generator developed by OpenAI that is apparently so good that the developers haven't released it yet because it's uh, too dangerous. It produces news articles that are too convincing. Um, It's fairly easy to see how the proliferation of these technologies undermines truth, um, which is why it's very comforting to know that the same companies developing these tools are also patenting solutions to them, to the very problems they're creating Uh, Modulate.ai is developing an audio watermark uh, to detect copied voices, um, uh, you know, voices copied using their technology. And if you're worried about deepfake videos, the technically savvy can look out for um, a particular telltale pixel intensity of a video that indicates a person's pulse rate. Or use um, other sophisticated uh, programs to reconstruct a scene in 3D to discover physical oddities. So next time you come across some fake news, just uh, you know, uh, put your applied computer science degree to use, and, and, and you'll be able to solve the problem. Um, my second vignette is about the Chinese government's social credit system. Uh, the system's motto is, once untrustworthy, always restricted. The basic idea is to generate a single trustworthiness score for every Chinese citizen. The system relies on the vast stores of data collected by the government's own departments and its corporate partners, people's credit history, their interactions with law enforcement, the products they buy, the things they say online, who their friends are. Um, All this information will be fed into an algorithm that will then produce a numerical score that will be used to determine everything from access to social security benefits, loan approvals and job applications to getting on trains and planes. By early 2017, 6.15 million people have already been banned from taking flights for social misdeeds. Your score can also um, can even affect your, your love life. The less trustworthy will find it harder to appear on other people's feeds in dating apps. The government's official plans for the system, which is due to be rolled out nationally by 2020, says that the social credit will, uh, quote, allow the trustworthy to roam everywhere under heaven while making it hard for the discredited to take a single leap. And it seems, for those who are able to roam everywhere, it's a system to be welcomed um, One example among many, um, there's a recent story in the South China Morning Post in which citizens in Rongcheng City in Shandong um, uh, talk about how they've welcomed the introduction of the system in their city um, because they've been sick of dealing with rampant fraud and counterfeiting. My third vignette...
3: Uh, sorry, but what else would you say? If the system's monitoring you, then the only thing you can say to the system is the thing that you know that the system would want to hear. So, of course, you can't say anything bad about the system. Otherwise, it puts you out with the system. So, yeah. So, you'll only hear good news.
4: Which is good news. Oh, it's
3: yeah. good news.
4: Um, Don't my... let anyone
3: tell you any different, Andre.
4: <laughs> my third vignette is taken from Bruno Latour, who begins his book Pandora's Hope with an anecdote um, from a conference in Brazil where Latour, the leading philosopher of science and technology studies, is approached by a nervous and highly respected psychologist. The psychologist has a very specific question for Latour. Do you believe in reality? Interestingly, the concern that prompted the nervous question wasn't related to new technologies, but instead related to Latour's philosophy, to his ideas. For Latour pioneered the view that scientific facts are not simply out there, waiting to be discovered by scientists. Instead, facts are the product of scientific inquiry, um, they 're networked and so rely on the strength of the institutions and practices which produce them. Lutour answers the psychologist 's question emphatically, Of course he believes in reality, but, he's make, but as he makes clear in the rest of the book, the reality he believes in is not so-called objective reality, a reality that exists in spite of us, but the reality we carefully construct together. In that sense, the reality of a particular fact consists not in its objective truth, that is the truth of a fact in isolation but on the number and quality of its connections to other phenomena, including other facts and the the practices and politics of its construction. Now that we're apparently post-truth, the psychologist's nervous question directed at Latour has been taken up by, amongst others, progressives as a cudgel. Do you believe in reality? We can see this dynamic at play on the question of climate change. The reality of human-caused climate change is asserted as subjective reality, and it is the climate change denialists who seem to take on the Latourian position, claiming that climate science is compromised by the politics of its process. Indeed, climate change denialism is often cited as an example of the dangers of Latour's social constructionist position, and more broadly, the dangers of all postmodernist theory, which brought into question the old truths. Um, In her... Um, book that was published last year, Death of Truth, uh, New York Times literary critic, Michiko Kakutuna, Kakutani repeated this line of attack um, uh, that's been taken up by others, um, blaming, amongst others, um, Jacques Derrida for the loss of this objective reality. I think there's something of the ostrich sticking its head in the sand about um, this response to the problem of truth as if it's the theories of Derrida and Latour that are so seductive that they've led us astray from objective truth, which remains out there to be discovered if we could only put down the French theory. On that view, we just need to keep insisting on the truth of climate science, even when, as has happened, climate scientists' emails are leaked, revealing the way they argue in private over the strategic choice of certain language, the inclusion of certain findings for reports. On that view, we should cover up the process of science and the politics of science which is exactly where the technologies and machine learning algorithms come in. For here are technological fixes that speak the language of depoliticized, objective reality. Um, It's a way of taking science and policy out of human hands. To put it another way, if you object to the use of algorithms in all kinds of social settings, the computer scientist's response may well be, do you believe in reality? The alternative approach, Latour's approach, is quite the opposite. It's to acknowledge, even to insist upon, the political and social nature of all our endeavours, including science. But this doesn't undermine the reality constructed by science, it strengthens it. So rather than hiding the climate scientists' emails, we should lay it all out in the open. The consensus among climate scientists isn't a given, a sterile fact, but the result of hard fought arguments across a huge web of scientists and institutions. It's a result of ongoing political decisions to support these scientists and institutions financially, but also politically. None of which is to say that the danger of critical tools being appropriated by the cynical, by corporate or fascist or racist powers, isn't very real. We can see that in someone like Steve Bannon, Trump's one-time chief strategist, talking about deconstructing the global order. But the danger lies not in the loss of objective reality, instead... I think it lies in the loss of a common world, which is a world we build together through our shared institutions, scientific, cultural, legal, political. And so what I take from the post-truth discussion is not that we have to reassert objective truth, truth disconnected from politics, but that we have to pay more attention to our truth-producing institutions. And we have to pay more attention to the politics of what is commonly thought of as apolitical, like algorithms.
2: Thank you, Andre. That's such a meaningful contribution. Um, well, I'm um have a lot to unpack. Uh Let's uh, give the mic to you, uh, Madison, um, for you.
0: Um, What a great ringtone. Um, You'll have to forgive me. I printed my speech out like a Luddite. um, So this is going to be awkward to read and not drop on the ground. so, in truth, I wasn't really sure where to begin this talk. Um, how to far to go back in search of some consensus of truth within journalism, which is mostly how I want to frame this, because that's kind of my experience and expertise, though. That might be a stretch. Um, truth in media, at least, has always been a passing consensus. And to try and trace truth back through history, I think is kind of like looking at the fossil record, you're looking at these moments that are frozen in time. An optimist would say, I think that we're moving towards some better understanding through this process, that we're getting closer to an ultimate truth or the truest truth. Um, I think that's what an optimist would say. so my job is not to make speeches about journalism or the media or to have insight in those things. Um, usually these days, I just edit a newspaper. And before that, I was a reporter. And so if there's one question that I've asked myself each and every day for the past five years, it's probably been, how do I know that this is true? So you rely on sources and you rely on experience and you rely on evidence and you rely on doing the work. And too often, I think you rely on your gut. Um, We live now, according to every think piece that I've read about journalism in the past uh, few days in a post-truth world. Um, According to John Keane from the University of Sydney, post-truth is more than entertainment. And while the genealogy of post-truth is partly traceable to the world of corporate advertising and market-driven entertainment in the corporate world, (laughs) trying to uh, fix our algorithmic problems. Um, It is is thoroughly political qualities. In the hands of the powerful or those bent on climbing ladders of power over others, the post-truth phenomenon functions as a new weapon of political manipulation. Post-truth is not about winning votes, siding with friends, or dealing with political foes. It has more sinister effects. It is a gaslighting exercise. And I think that there's this common argument that the presidency of Donald Trump ushered in this post-truth world. Um, he is the gaslighter-in-chief, as Lauren Duca, um first wrote fairly convincingly, but a longer view of history, I think, would suggest that Trump employs tactics that have been long favoured by propagandists and dictators. And in this post-truth and its travelling companion, um, fake news aren't terms that concern me um, both feel predicated on a belief that the powerful were somehow ever bound to truth um, it, it reminds me of when I was a teenager and one of my friends older brothers convinced us that if you asked a undercover cop whether they were a cop they had to tell you like as though um, it was sort of in their code uh, he <laughs> bragged about going to Meredith Music Festival. And um, bailing up this sort of sinister older gentleman who was hanging around their um, campsite and asking him he was, if he was cop, and the guy um, uncovered, stormed off, unable to arrest them for the small amount of um, weed they had um, that, this story that, that story wasn 't true that's not <laughs> that 's not what happened to that guy at Meredith. he was just bragging and I also think that it's not true that if you confront the powerful with the truth, that will ever prompt them to reveal or admit their wrongdoing. And I think in this moment, of course, of the Catholic Church, and if we want to talk about reality being used as a tool to intimidate, there's probably not a more timely um, example. I think of the incredible work done by journalists like Louise Milligan and Lucy morris Ma and Joanne McCarthy, journalists who confronted powerful figures in the church with evidence of abuse, with facts, again and again, only to be met with walls of silence and outright threats. Even now, after the most powerful Catholic figure Australia has ever produced has been found guilty in a court of law, there are still those within the media in particular that are committed to dismissing and twisting the facts to suit their own theories of the case. And so, I think the Trumpian turn of phrase that troubles me more for the media's sake, is alternative facts. As journalists, we gather facts. They are the atoms that make up the product of our industry. We attempt to cobble together some understanding of what happened from the facts, because when you're telling a news story, 100% of the time, something happened, and you're trying to work out the what, the why, when, the how. At some point, though, you have to go to print. Um, Or you publish, but you know, we actually go to print. Um, and you have to freeze the story and to extend this already hackneyed fossil record metaphor, you have to add another layer. And so I think of Nat Randall and Anna Brecken's rear, window, uh, rear view, which is part of um, the exhibition, and no matter how endless that road seems, at some point in the film, it has to flick back to the first frame. You will always know more than you can ever put to print. While what we publish may be the truth, it's never the whole truth. In journalism, there are so many truths, particularly when it comes to powerful people, whispered rumours, open, secret, open secrets that will never be known to the public. In Australia, in particular, this is often because of fear of defamation. Uh, that Australia's restrictive defamation laws have held back Me Too in this country is something that feels very true to me as a journalist, and I'm definitely not the first person to say that. Of course, there are also things that journalists hold back out of respect to privacy, a nod to the idea that there is a public and a private self, which some people still hold to be true. The undermining of facts in our current era scares me. To agree on truth feels very top level. At this moment, we can't even agree on the basic building blocks of the world or of understanding the problem. Of course, this isn't limited to journalism. As André mentioned, climate scientists have long faced this issue. But now journalism finds itself in an extremely precarious position, a decade-long decline that still hasn't stabilised. Last year, the Senate published um, this report about the future of public interest journalism in Australia, and it is not a fun read. Um, But there's this one diagram, I always think about it, which is optimistically titled um, Tracing the Death Spiral of Newspapers. It, and it visualises how a drop in revenue led to a decline, a decline in quality, which in turn damaged credibility, which impacted on revenue and, and so on and, and so forth until we are in the position that we find ourselves now. Um, last year, Edelman found that trust in the Australian media was lower than trust in NGOs, business, um, or even the government um, of those survey- surveyed, 65% of people said they didn't even know how to tell what was true in what they were reading. There's something that gives me hope in those survey findings, though, which is that people were asked about their trust in the media, not in journalism. It's like when I look at Matthew Griffin's work, The Alternate, um, what I see is a critique of media, not of journalism talking heads on fox news isn't journalism think pieces aren't journalism andrew bolt isn't journalism <laughs> if there's a treat, uh, if there's a critique to be made of journalism i think it's that we haven't guarded our profession jealously enough the title has been stretched so thin over so much content masquerading as journalism that it's now almost see through Edelman split its findings into two groups. So there's the general population, and it's what they termed the informed public, which is defined as university-educated people who consume significant amounts of media. Among this group, the informed public, trust in media actually jumped in 2018. It jumped by 10% um, to 50%, which isn't that great, but it's, it's still better than the alternative, which is, for the general population, um, trust in media fell to 30%. To me, this shows that people who are regularly taking in high-quality journalism are experiencing a growth in trust. Good work is being done, and it is being <laughs> recognised, um, but there is bad work being done too, and which is passing itself off successfully as journalism. It's a distorted reality. In the nature of our digital world, this is often the content that's most widely disseminated. So, as a newspaper editor... The question I ask myself now is how we try and build trust in journalism when we face a reality that in the public's mind, the definition of what journalism is has become incredibly broad. I never actually studied journalism. Um, My approach is one that comes solely from experience rather than academia. Um, At university, I actually studied economics um, and became deeply obsessed with game theory. Um, Which I don't think is... I think that every economics undergrad who read Freakonomics did the exact same thing. Um, But so game theory tells us that mistakes don't undermine trust entirely. So you can make mistakes um, and a little bit of miscommunication will lead to forgiveness. And I think that the public will accept corrections to stories. But too many mistakes are what leads to distrust. I think it's important we be more specific what we mean by journalism, its central functions, its ethical requirements, in order to limit how many mistakes for which we're being blamed. But if we're now in a crisis period, as I see that we are, I think it's also necessary for journalism to reevaluate whether the bar we've set for ourselves is further undermining our credibility and the trust the public holds in our work. This this desire to see ourselves as arbiters of the truth, I think it's attractive, and I think it's understandable, but I think it raises the risk that we fail by our own test. What happens when new information shows your truth, what you've declared to be truth, to be a falsehood? What happens when someone offers alternative facts that challenge your truth? I think the alternative is a more focused, though admittedly sexy, model of journalism. journalism. as the collection of facts. I think economists might call this a Bayesian approach, an attempt to move incrementally towards some higher understanding, some ultimate truth, the truest truth, less and less wrong. Truth as the goal with the understanding that it's perhaps unreachable, but nonetheless worthy of a life's work.
2: Thank you. There was a really great connection um between you, Madison, and Andrea around the key question in post-truths in how facts are still important. It's not like facts are not important anymore, but they are being politicised and utilised in the way that they were um, never before. And so in climate change case, and this is something that Lee McIntyre explains in the the book called Post-Truths about how people he demonstrates how, within climate change, polit- political um, debates will go around the same facts, but they will be used um, with different agendas, and, and therefore those um, uh, political claims are made um, using the same facts. Um, is that something that um, you might uh, expand on um, a little bit in terms of the relationship between facts um, and and journalism?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the climate change example is a, a really interesting one, especially when you look at the US. Um, I think it was last year, or maybe in 2017, um, Jane Mayer, who's an amazing journalist for The New Yorker, released this book called Dark Money. And part of it is about how um, conservative groups within the US funded think tanks at universities, funded um, courses within universities, funded schools um, within universities because there was this understanding that information, that generating research and facts and things that you could give over to the media to be reported was the start of changing people's minds about issues and a lot of that was focused on. so it was on trickle-down economics was sort of the the first thing, so supply side, but also on climate change and on the link between um, sort of human-generated carbon emissions and climate change. And that undermining of of what was genuinely sort of a consensus in, in the mid-60s and early 70s throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s was centrally funded and... Um, and pushed out through universities, which I think we often... I mean, you both work in universities, but I think we like to think that they are um, sort of separate from these um, neoliberal forces (laughs) in in some ways. But the the funding, I guess, with the Ramsey Centre that's coming through in Australian universities as well, I'm sure that that's a concern about vested interests, wanting to fund the creation of facts to inject it into the public discourse.
2: And you also pointed to the, um, uh, the idea of institutions and how in post-truths um, there is a, this rethinking of all of our major institutions and that, as Madison, you, you pointed out that media was uh, perhaps the first one to be um, completely burst open through Trumpism and he, through his um, own relationship to media itself as a, as a president. Um, and now we see that, um, I mean, your um, contribution, uh, Justin um, and Andre sort of let me think also that um, we kind of focus a lot on um, the media within post-throughs, but there are other institutions that also should be questions uh, in the light of what's um, happening in um, education and art and theory and universities is, is also something that um, is probably good to um, to sort of unpack as well in that context.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think there's certainly a Coordinated attack on, um, say, the judicial system or the legal system as an institution of you know, fact production, and you see that in in relation to the Powell case, but you see that in in um, in in Trump's actions and in, in the US, but um, certainly also here. Um, I think that to me that one of the dangers is. Um, uh, kind of reflexively defending um, an institution that um, has flaws um, and very serious ones, and so um, that's the sort of the difficult line to to straddle is that um, when and, and so when those when people have said oh this kind of leftist critique is being appropriated by the right um, to say deconstruct the judicial system, um, you know there was there was a reason that. Critique exists in the first place is that um, there are huge problems with the way the judicial system creates facts, or um, and, and, and anyone who works in uh, you know criminal justice reform knows that. Anyone who works in um, you know Aboriginal law reform knows that. But so um, the danger to me at this moment is that, so we have this um, coordinated right wing attack on uh, say that it's something like the judicial system. Um, and at the same time, we're given this promise of these technologies that can find the truth for us without human involvement. Um, and so then the temptation would be to, um, to, to sort of defeat that attack is to replace um, human decision-makers more and more with um, algorithms. And that's something that's already happening in, um, say, the United States, where um, up to nine states... Um, are using algorithms to sentence people or to to inform sentencing decisions. Um, And I think that's a trend that I can say continuing um, if the the response to the attacks on the judicial system um, is to to rely on this idea that there's an objective truth that we can find through uh, algorithmic means.
3: Um, uh, like I, I guess I, I sort of agree with 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 both the other speakers, but I guess I, the the other thing I want to say about the, these algorithms is we we know and we know with the uh, that in, their use in sentencing has already exacerbated existing prejudices in quite a radical way, and I, I don't believe that people actually anyone thinks that an algorithm can uh, produce objective truth. I think the opposite. I think Precisely because we've given up, and for good reason, and I, I totally agree with what Andre says, is part of the problem with the critique of institutions is most of these institutions fucking stink, right? Like, from the from the ground up, they're, like, completely rotten. However, in a catastrophic situation, which I, I don't think is a, an overly hysterical or histrionic way to, to express this, is that algorithms are exceedingly cheap and if you look at the the business models of of Google and Facebook and so on uh, more and more evidence is is coming out about the actual workplace structures, the capitalist workplace structures of these institutions and if you look at the work around where where do all the managerial techniques that involve you know, we talk about the universities or the legal system or journalism but these are not the same things that they were 20, 30 years ago. They have been deliberately hollowed out from within by a concerted, concerted uh, uh, managerial attempts to reorganise every single system according to the 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 the, the absolute and uh, universal maxim of prof- profit maximisation. So, to give you an example, uh, there's a woman from uh, uh, from uh, LA. I think she, she's a historian based. Called, uh, uh, based at one the UCLA, maybe UCLA, called Caitlin Rosenthal. And she started looking at the history of managerial techniques in, in contemporary corporate America. And it turned out very quickly that all of these techniques were, in fact, invented and developed, in fact, and refined in the slave plantations of North America in the 19th century by rentier capitalists. And Rosenthal started to publish a whole series of articles, uh, whereabouts... Uh, Harvard Law Review, um, Forbes, in fact, all of the the great capitalist uh, 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 um, media were delighted. They were like, oh tell us more. Can you tell us more about how they, they put the slaves into little work groups and then generated intense competition for very, very little reward and then in the intense competition generated from these small group teams would do extreme punishments on people who didn't meet those those requirements and then once this competition had generated a, a new, new levels of productivity then they would hold everyone to those new levels of pro- productivity and this was accompanied of course by more and more intrusive surveillance and reorganisation, mostly by snapping apart any sense that you could stay in an institution for more than a year. In fact, your life is on notice. Whatever institution we're in now, we're on short-term precarious contracts, etc., etc. So uh, Rosenthal's point is, let's not just look at the technologies of, of the digital, but let's look at the the way that managerial techniques have uptaken, refined and repurposed the most obscene techniques from history in a way that is no longer simply, I would say, archaeological, but part of the problematic of, uh, that, that I guess Rosenthal and others have, have pointed to is that the most obscene and techniques that we thought were... Uh, gone, vanished, gone, and, and, and rightfully buried, can be revivified at a moment and repurposed, uh, like, and, uh, 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 repurposed um, globally, whereas labor, as we know, is more local and more restricted than ever. To come back to Andre's example of, of the, 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 the Chinese government's social, uh, social index, note how the pun- one of the punishments is you cannot move. It's around your powers of movement. Everything, every labour will more and more be localised and kept in its place, and more and more capital will free itself and move faster and faster globally. And it will be enhanced and encouraged by the the sorts of managerial techniques that I believe uh, uh, Rosenthal and others have shown to, to be at work. And what does that do? That totally undermines everyone's attempt to be able to speak truth to power without themselves being at risk.
4: Um, Yeah, I don't think it's an accident that um, one place that these um, algorithmic techniques of control are being um, rolled out and tested is in migration. So um, uh, governments around the world are are turning to algorithms to um, do the work of finding out the truth of the identity of a person who claims to be an asylum seeker, um, who claims to be um, a refugee. Um, and, uh, I mean, one um, particularly egregious example of this is in um, the use of something called uh, language analysis um, uh, where uh, there's kind, of kind of this junk science um, around trying to determine where a refugee... Uh, a person who says they're refugees from within a particular country. Um, and it's this, uh, this model that's been um, developed by particularly, I think, Swedish companies... Um, that says, uh, you know, this person's dialect um, says that they're actually from this part of the Congo and not the other part that they said they're from. Um, but it's it's this way of viewing the world, it, you can split it off um, into uh, neat, encodable um, facts. So, um, for instance, when it comes to language analysis, it says, it, does, it takes into no account why a person's accent might actually straddle different dialects. Um, it's instead sees that as, you know, um, as falsity, someone trying to, um, to, to cheat the system. So, um, it, but it's wonderfully efficient process of, um, rather than getting an expert into a room and, and interviewing, um, an asylum seeker, um, who has, um, background, human knowledge about the place and why people might have a strange, um, dialect history because they were educated in a Portuguese high school and then... Um, you know, move the border because there was a conflict in 1993. All those sorts of, um, that kind of background knowledge is taken away and then you you just box people up into small bits of data that um, you can then make quick, efficient decisions about their migration status on.
0: I think there was a really interesting work in the... Liquid Architecture show eavesdropping about that technology, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah
4: by Lawrence Ab- Abu Hamdan. Yeah and, yeah, and
0: it was used until quite recently by the Australian government, I think.
4: I th- yeah, and I think um, it's sort of in... It's continually being refined, and um, it, it, it's actually a non-algorithmic technology at first, but um, uh, there's, it, it has clear kind of automatable... Um, and um, potential, yeah.
2: And it, it's a nice segue into the art context as well, um, thinking about uh, the sort of truth value that art might have in relation to t- talking to very serious and, and important subjects and more in general, and, um, and also referring uh, to Helen Badiou's text, which I think was um, quite important in, because it also touched upon theatricality um, and poetry. And so I also wanted to um, ask you, um, as poet and fiction writer, um, uh, in this idea that, but you express that poetry, for example, um, might have a kind of special um, truth value because it is beyond language. It's beyond what someone could express verbally um to the other person it, it has something that's um something else um what what will you think about that proposition
3: right, I, I mean just to, to to come to sort of the works in the show the, the the you know all of the works like uh, actually i guess we've just been giving a kind of rather abstruse gloss on some of the works the control of space the 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 the, the around how space is regulated and cut up by often architecturally by very, yeah. very straightforward... Consuelo Yes, uh, and then uh, uh, Daniel's work, which is in fact about the bozoness of secret societies, because we should never underestimate how stupid and incompetent the masters actually are. Like, I think Trump is often like, is often, uh, although I think he's kind of a genius in his own hideous way, but the, the problem of secret societies, of organisation, of people wanting to play at being a secret agent but actually becoming a secret agent by playing at it but at the same time not playing it very well. I think that's shown. The idea of re- re-scripting or rewriting and replaying the same script with totally different characters and a totally different sort of side or indeed the critique of media that I think you, you saw in Matt Griffin's uh, work. I think these are the things that like you know art can art can do very well through a process of uh, uh, maybe this is, is, is something is through a process of retardation and um, uh, a retardation. Like, uh, uh, art, art at the moment, if it's if it's worth anything, is we're in an intense, continuous 24-hour flow of information, right? Like, it never stops. You don't have the period of, I get the daily paper in the morning, which is, as the philosopher GWF Hegel said, it's the bourgeois morning prayer. You get up, you read the morning paper, what's in the paper, but it doses your news. None of us are dosed in that way. We're now self-dosing with this continual sort of that we have. What, what, what art does at least is just isolate, or at least some of the works that I'm, I'm seeing here, isolate and stop that flow such that you don't really know what you're looking at or, or, or moving through to start off with. But in its very, like, I guess, cut into the, to the, to the unspeakable like a torrent of vol- volatile bullshit, like actually doesn't proclaim itself to be true, but enables you to stop and look and recalibrate or reorient yourself maybe for, for a moment.
4: Yeah, I thought that was interesting in relation to Daniel's work, so about the uh, Australian sort of Secret Service, um, the way he made decisions to um, uh, kind of counteract truth claims in a way. So the computer-generated um, people in in, in in the work um, are sort of obviously fake, um, and there's kind of a glitchiness to the aesthetic. Um, uh, I noticed that there were uh, typos retained from um, from the the transcripts that he uh, and the archive that he was drawing upon,
3: and he put it some in himself too, Andre. <laughs> right, <let's be. laughs>
4: um, you know, and that's there's something, and that's something that I, I think you, you don't need to be able to do within this art context um, that um, to sort of draw attention to artificiality. In that way, would be sort of the death of a, a, a legal document, for example. Um, and 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 similarly, if you're working within a strict sort of genre of nonfiction, whereas if you can, wor- yeah, if you're working in a in a different genre, or different um, area that allows for drawing attention to those um, sort of truth claims, and in, in a way, yeah, you can um, you can be more truthful without having to sort of. Sweep under the rug all the ways in which you constructed the reality that um, that you're creating.
0: Um, I think if people haven't seen that Daniel Janash work, you definitely should. It's kind of wonderful, Um, but it sort of is based on this strange story about um, a a group of Australian secret intelligence officers that were sent on a training exercise and they stayed. Is it the Sheraton in Melbourne and? they, they were sort of sent out on this training exercise where they burst into the hallways in, um, with guns and um, sort of, I guess, all guns blazing, but nobody at the hotel was informed that this training exercise was going on, so they really thought that this was happening and that there were um, hostages and this whole scene playing out. Um, and I think it kind of plays into your whole hoax reality, hoax reality, death spiral. Um, but it, it's an amazing work. I, I don't know, it makes it makes me think of of the power of government to withhold um, information or truths or, or sort of, I guess, whatever you want to put those in. I guess that story would have never come out if it wasn't for um, one of the um, members of the group telling her story eventually. Um, and there is so much that is held um, within the government and it's not accessible by freedom of information. Um, you, I've More times in, than I can say, I've applied for, for documents through for freedom of information and been rejected. And you, I mean, you can fight, like you can go to court and you can spend money, but media doesn't really have that much money to, to continually fight for this information. So I think that power of government to withhold even the facts that could feed into work, we're, we're, we're making work about what we know, but what don't we know, um, I think is the question that that piece in particular makes me think about. Um.
4: Have you ever gotten one of those freedom of information requests back where they give you the document you asked for, but they've blacked out everything on the
3: page?
0: I have. I got one from Victoria Police. It, uh, it was a giant stack, and they had redacted everything in it. That's just, that's just rude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: And then, and then there's the, the, the other form where they give you way too much information for you to be able to take it in. So I, I was complaining uh, to Helen Johnson, and I was like, you know, since you're talking about poetry, I mean, like, is there anything anyone reads less than fucking poetry these days? And she was like, yeah, the terms and conditions that you have to sign on to whenever you're online. And she goes, but the difference is poetry is meaningless to everyone, whereas the terms and conditions are really, really <laughs> going to affect your life. Like, your life. Yeah, they <laughs> impact your life.
2: Um, we might open up to the floor and see if, um, if, any, if any one of you have a question. We'll bring the, the wireless mic around.
4: Very simple question. So, um, I mean, what does the so-called liberal middle ground do about all of this? Do we become more extremist or where do we go?
3: Um, my, my shrink used to quote this. Uh, I, I, I can't remember. I think he's—I can't remember his name. He was a, 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 maybe a, a Colombian uh, politician who'd say, "Give me mediocrity or give me death." Oh, okay. So maybe mediocrity and death are the, are the, are the options. Oh.
2: But I was—I was also uh, watching a, a video, a keynote by Matthew Dukonna, who's one of the uh, key uh, writers about Pothros. He's a British journalist, and he was saying how nowadays um, neutrality is, is, nothing is neutral anymore, especially in in relation to politics. If you're neutral or not taking action, it means you are retreating. um, And so just being and, and, and reading, is not enough in a sense. He was... It he was, he was uh, his if way not, of kind of uh, calling for action. If but you're
3: not with us, you're against us, and there's an absolute divide in that militarisation of every, every possible position such that no ambivalence or complexity seems to be able to be possible. That's part of the, the terror of the situation. Is that... Is that
4: Well, I think there was a report that just came out about um, uh, Facebook's very aggressive and sometimes successful lobbying against privacy laws and regulation around the world, including, I mean, I think the way the report put it was um, that, the uh, you know, Ireland's uh, a vassal state of Facebook in that respect in, in terms of lobbying on Facebook's behalf um, in, in relation to EU um, data protection laws. So I, I suppose um, looking at... Uh, looking at our institutions and thinking about how, um, you know, money and power are, are used behind the scenes um, to, to influence this. Yeah, I mean, my view is we're, you know, we're all part of it and we benefit from it, so therefore we're silent, um, kind of like the Germans during the certain period of time but that's that's i'm just curious why there isn't such a, a stronger opposition
3: these, these these some of these are exactly as andre said some of these corporations are bigger than many nation states like they have like and and they actually like uh, the, the nation state itself becomes the kind of plenipotentiary potentiary of like Gigantic multinational forces, which it can't control, and which it's, it's, you know, itself, you know, certain uh, institutions like whether it's law or uh, 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 law or education or religion, we can see that they're all being put under so much pressure by this, uh, by the, by the kind of globalised, real-time, digital, uh, financial. Uh, 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 corporate actions, they've got no... We're, we're at what point? We're, we're not silent. It's the very contrary. We're not silent. We're very, very vocal. But being very vocal is part of the feeding the very machine that is exploiting you. That's, the, that's part of a... I think a, a part of a deadlock that I wanted to point to, that in the very attempt, all our traditional ma- means of combating these sorts of... Re- like are actually now part of the... They're, now, they're actually integrated and, and exploitable by the system, by these sorts of systems themselves, like...
0: Um, I think that in that term, complicity as well, like, to look at the media in particular, I do think that journalists are in part complicit in it. Um, We have, like, a deeply felt aversion to regulation because I think it probably comes from the place that we think we're good enough at our jobs that we don't need to be told how to do them, which is arrogant. But it also comes from the place that our task is to... Um, you know, hold power to account and to let the powerful create regulations for us, um, I can understand where that aversion comes from. But I do think that if you... We were talk, talking earlier about this journalist named Jason Leopold. Um, he's, a, he's a US journalist, and he broke this story that um, Donald Trump told Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. Um, and it was sort of this huge story, um, but no other news organization could stand it up. The New York Times couldn't, CNN, The Washington Post, no one could um, verify this story, which is a, kind of an immediate red flag when you have the best journalists in, in the US not being able to sort of stand up a scoop. Um, And it's come out over the course of the last few weeks that maybe that wasn't the exact reality of what happened. And and in the course of Jason Leopold's story being ripped to shreds by every media organization, he released his emails with, um, with the government, which show his entire process of trying to fact check the story with them. And they are so deeply unprofessional and are not ticking off like, the most basic things that you would be taught in journalism school. So I think that the idea that we're good enough to regulate ourselves, even the best journalists, one of the best journalists in the US, wasn't, wasn't doing, you know, best practice or even the, the most basic um, of fact-checking. Um, so, yeah, I, d- I just don't think that the, the no, le- need for no regulation of, of media is, um, especially of news media, is um, a reality.
2: I think I'll just say, also, in a in sense that it's it's not all completely new. And I think in the history of journalism as well, um, we've seen with the rise of the television and all the media how our relationship to media itself has changed. Um, and within um, sort of commentators in the past, even in the 19th, 19th century, when um, the press was being used and uh, newspapers were starting to be widespread, there were a lot um, of writers who were um, alarmed by the fact that it, um, this journalistic sort of trend is already killing long form criticism, for example. Um, so I think we, it's taking it into a new sort of dimension nowadays within the digital, but those things actually do have quite a long history um, as well.
5: Oh, hi. Um, thank you for uh, uh, talking on uh, this topic. I found it very interesting. Um, I just had a, a question. I find the idea that somehow the, the, sort of the, the intellectual left is behind this sort of post-truth world that we live in today, and I notice that people talk about this a lot, and they bring up people like Foucault and Derrida and, and Latour as people that have been long-time critics of the, the idea of truth, and specifically the idea of a, a kind of, like a sort of transcendental objective truth that somehow exists in the world independent of human You know, kind of human knowledge or human action, Um, and I I wonder these people have been sort of this kind of critique of 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 knowledge has been quite a a, a strong part of uh, I guess the the Western philosophical tradition, going right back to um, Aristotle and Socrates, Um, and I just wonder if. If I mean, and, and specifically, even in the 20th century, you have people like Foucault and Derrida. I mean, the pe- these people have been talking about the relation between truth and power for a long time. Um, why is it that it's only in the, the 21st century, in the last 10, 20 years, that we have had such a, a rise of um, of the kind of you know post-truth in you know kind of news that we that, that we're that we've been experiencing? And, and I and I wonder if that's not because people have suddenly just started listening to people like Foucault and Derrida. I mean, that would, be, that would be amazing. And I think people should do that, like more of that, but whether science itself has changed. Um, and, and maybe maybe the, the question shouldn't be, um, you know, like, like how, what, why was Derrida wrong and why was Foucault wrong, but how has science actually changed? And I think this is very important in the, in the, in the context of the climate change debate. Um, uh, on yesterday's in, uh, Insider's interview, Barry Cassidy was interviewing um, uh, the Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, and the, there was a dispute between, uh, there was a dispute over the statement, um, carbon, emissions have, or carbon emissions have increased. Um, and Barry Cassidy was trying to say that in the last year, um, carbon emissions have increased, whereas Angus Taylor was insisting that they hadn't increased um, because he was using figures of the last uh, two or three months. Right? So this situation, I think, illustrates to a certain extent, like why science is maybe implicated in this more than what people realize, uh, because they're both right. And the issue isn't so much what is the nature of truth that we're kind of missing out on, but how is truth being used? And I think in this case, people like Foucault would actually give us a much deeper and richer understanding of what's actually going on and what we need to do and what we actually need to criticize than what people really give him credit for and other you know, intellectuals, uh, like left intellectuals. So I was wondering if maybe you could comment on that.
4: Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree that the, the, the criticism of, um, of those theorists is sort of ushering in a post-truth um, era is completely misguided and in fact probably gets it the, the wrong way around. Um, but I think what is perhaps more interesting in a way is um, of the ones that are still alive, Latour say, uh, questioned that this uh, issue of post-truth and you know, he, he acknowledges that his um, critique of, of knowledge can be appropriated, it can be misappropriated. Um, and, and one of the things that he said in this interview that kind of jumped out at me was he said well I was making those critiques um, uh, in a world premised on uh, it was premised on a common world and we had a common world and if you think of the era in which um, say Derrida and Foucault operated um, like from the 70s through uh, to the the 90s uh it's a, it's a time of at least um, in some respects a kind of Western global hegemon in the U.S. um, and a a consensus. Um,
3: But Sorry can we just not forget the Soviet Union existed (laughs) which was kind of important and also decolonization struggles uh, uh, across the world as well. So uh, I mean one of the things about that common world just I didn't want uh, just to is that it was a common world that was common in its dividedness. At least there was a First and second world capitalist versus communist at least nominally we had a big division we knew that and then there were decolonising decolonizing struggles as well so the part of the common world was not a simple we're all a happy unity but it was like strenuously divided in in ideological and and, and technically in and economic ways as well like.
4: yeah perhaps a better way to say it. I mean there was a claim of a common world though that um, that those theorists could 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 critique um, and as that common world, or that claim that claim is sort of shown to be false in, 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 in the way politics um, in the 21st century has played out. But because there's not that claim to anchor those um, critiques, I think it, at least Latour's point, as I read him, is that it changes the context in which those critiques operate now. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: I think um, to speak to the insider's portion of your question... Um rather than the philosophy portion of the question, um, the Angus Taylor interview was really interesting because um, and if you read the Saturday paper, um, Mike Seham did a really long piece um, last weekend fact checking um, Scott Morrison's climate solutions package uh, it it took Mike slightly more words than ended up being published, but you know it was 3,000 words in the paper, um, and I think you kind of speak about this binary world that was a bit easier to sort, and I think that this question with, um, not to focus overly on climate, but it's, it's not binary, like, it, it is incredibly complicated, and there are, um, There are so many different ways to to read what's being put out in terms of this climate solutions package that it takes 2,500 words for an exceptionally good climate environmental journalist to unpack. Um.
3: But none of us are that, right? I mean, there might be some climate scientists in this room, I don't know, but you're not a climate scientist, I'm yep. not a climate... I have to take this on trust. Mm-hmm. So I've had to make a decision about who I trust, mm-hmm. And that, but given that I can't actually justify my decision in terms that would actually mean anything to people who don't agree with me, then I realise I'm slightly fucked, because on the one hand, obviously, we're completely fucked. The, the climate is rooted, and the climate scientists are 100% right. Mm-hmm. But... How are you actually going to explain that since we've all... Since, since I actually don't know that, I've just, I just believe some people, right? You believe some... Is mm-hmm. anyone a climate scientist? is anyone a climate scientist? Like uh, you see what I'm, I'm, I'm t- not, You see what, yeah. I'm, you see what I'm saying is that see. we've made some decisions about trust and those decisions about trust are kind of arbitrary in the eyes of our enemies. Mm-hmm. If that's, and there's no way of winning that, that, that trust by simply pointing to more facts. Mm-hmm. The, de- the facts are downstream of the decision we've made to trust. If, yep. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think that does make sense. I think, but, I mean, to, to speak to truth, it's also truth that we will meet our climate targets in a canter, because that is a framing of these targets that were set through a very um, convoluted process that Australia lobbied hard so that we would be able to meet these targets in a canter. Like, the the falsehood, or the, the spin traces back so far... So, more,
3: more good news. So, this is good news.
0: <laughs> um... Yes, we're all about good news. Fantastic. <laughs> um, but I guess the level of obfuscation mm-hmm. is what is like, horrifying. Mm-hmm. These things that Angus Taylor says are true because they are predicated on these incredibly convoluted algorithms and, and, um, and formulas that were set up so that we could clear these targets.
5: Yeah, I, th- I think the point is that, that he he can he can reject like the statement the you know carbon emissions have have risen because of science. So he, he a particular kind of scientific technology that that he is invoking the the science of you know statistics. He is right. I mean, over the last two months, carbon emissions went down, right? But so the point isn't isn't that he's somehow using science the wrong way or that he's he's somehow like turning it into a kind of like a you know like kind of like making it false but he's he, he's still he's using science and so there's a kind of concept in the the sort of science studies literature that um that this idea of there's in science as an excess of objectivity there's almost too much there's there's too many ways you can prove things in science and i think statistics and climate science is a perfect example of that That the view of science it's best to to have is that science is like a hammer Right? You you can use it to hammer nails in. Right? Yeah, but 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 it it can't tell us. No, 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 just just a regular hammer. Uh, And the hammer can't tell us which nail to hit in into the wall. Right? But once we've decided which nail to hit into the wall, right, it's very good at doing that. So we need to have a discussion in, in, in sort of in those terms of like what we're trying to do with the science. Right? Angus Taylor obviously wants to do a particular thing with science. Right, and I think that's part why he's, you know, a mm-hmm. member of the Liberal Party. But we need to say, what do we want to do with the science? And once we once we have that discussion. Then, then we can start talking about truth and, and science and all this kind of stuff. But uh, well, we well, one of on the, the things, science...
3: sorry to interrupt, but one of the things that I, I, I've, done, I've done a lot of work on, is, uh, as, uh, as Annabelle said before, is psychoanalysis. And one of the things that Freud, uh, so to speak, uh, formalises is that, you know, yes, there's truth, there's falsity, we're lying to ourselves, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but human beings are the only animal that lie by telling the truth. And we know that Angus was lying, even if what he said was factually accurate. Why? Because the sight Of the factual, the allegedly factually accurate was directed to ends that had nothing to do with with the reporting of the fact themselves, and so that gap between the the statement and the reason he's saying it, that is that is part of the problem of truth for humans, right? Not just a hammer, not just a nail, but the very act of enunciation undermines the, the the content of the of the saying. Sorry, that was a bit uh, abstruse, but you know, hopefully that made made some sense.
0: I I think that's very true, and I think it feeds into the point that journalists find themselves at now, and newspapers and editors find themselves where to define or to declare when something is a lie. Um, I well, what I don't. Are you <laughs> Well it was yeah, in no, the, I mean that really, yeah yeah, yeah I mean, right in that. the paper this weekend, we said that Scott Morrison is a liar mm. because um because he is <laughs> but were he but he 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 lied about a very specific thing that happened that we reported on, and then he went on John Fane's show and told John Fain to stop reading the Saturday paper because it's false, mm. um, which is his opinion, and he's allowed to hold it, but it it was a lie that um he did not um that he, you know, did not know this information that the Department of Home Affairs gave him to, um, to amend the bill, so that it wouldn't be a threat to border security. He was given that information. He chose not to act on it so that he could politicise it. Um, we reported that, and he said that it was false. So that is a lie. Um, but that is a, that, I think that's a scary thing for journalists to do, to start becoming the arbiters of truth and lies. I, I don't know if that's the position that we want to end up in But it seems like the position that we have. Thank you. Well, I think it might be time um,
2: to uh, thank our speakers. And uh, please join us afterwards for a drink if you'd like to uh, continue um, chatting. Thank you.
5: You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.